Two questions are at the heart of this podcast. The first is, what is religion? Is it primarily about religious services, religious symbols, and worship services? Or is religion broader than that? If it's primarily about Shabbat services, Sunday school, holidays at the mosque, or adorning jewelry, religion really can be consigned to the edges of life. On the other hand, if religion is a way of life, and for many it is a way of life, or a set of spectacles for seeing the world, or a holistic worldview, then religion cannot be consigned to the edges of life. If religion is more worldview than cultural adornment, as would describe perhaps the deepest convictions of 2.3 billion Christians in the world and 1.9 billion Muslims in the world, then in real life, it quickly enters into the public fray, affecting the realms of education, care for the elderly, politics, business, community life, and so on. A second question, and the topic of this particular episode is, what is educational pluralism? In many ways, that topic and definition flows directly from a conviction that education, like religion, reflects a fundamental way of life, a unique orientation, and even a spiritual world and life view. Those arguing for educational pluralism are quick to point out that every last one of us, including teachers and their support structure, has some kind of worldview. It's true for the secular humanist school, the Catholic school, an agnostic public school, a Protestant Christian school, an Enlightenment philosoph school, a Jewish day school, or a Muslim or Mormon school. As Charles Taylor taught, every pedagogy, no matter that pedagogy, has a core anchor. So what's educational pluralism? Our guest today, Ashley Berner, Deputy Director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Educational Policy, where she's also a professor, says it's a school system in which the government funds and regulates, but does not necessarily provide public education. Moreover, Professor Berner says, a pluralist approach to regulating and funding a wide array of educational approaches is far more common throughout the rest of the world than the U.S. system, where public education means a uniform, state-funded, state-managed approach to schooling our kids. To help us parse out the differences between these two educational models, Ashley is joined by Aliyah Wong, a two-time award-winning education reporter at The Atlantic, who previously covered K-12 issues and higher education from Honolulu. Enjoy the conversation. Well, I'm excited to talk with you, Ashley. I, I thought we could start by having you just spell out what we mean by educational pluralism. What what does that concept really entail? So educational pluralism is a way to structure public education such that the government funds and regulates but doesn't necessarily deliver public education. So it's the democratic norm. Most democracies actually have this structure in contrast to our default, which is that district schools are public schools. And when you say deliver, what exactly does that mean? So what it means is that in countries like the UK or most provinces of Canada or Sweden, the government will fund all different kinds of schools. They only provide some of them. 
Best example is the Netherlands that funds 36 different kinds of schools on equal footing. 30% of the kids in the Netherlands attend what we would call district schools, but the rest of the schools are delivered by churches, synagogues, institutions of higher learning, and so forth. Wow. And and you say this is really the norm globally in that the U.S. is kind of an outlier in that regard. That's right. The U.S. is an outlier. And the reason this is so important is because we only know what we know. And most of us assume that public education is one thing because we've always known it that way. So part of what I'm trying to do in my work is just to pull back from our context and just start a new kind of conversation. Right, right. I'm curious, what are the historical roots of of this conceptualization? Why is it that we're so attached to this idea of public education as this uniform, very hands-on experience that's sort of overseen by the government? That's a great question. So we used to not be uniform. Our school systems used to be quite diverse and plural. And just As an example, we used to fund at the state and local level congregationalist schools, secular schools, de facto Jewish schools, Catholic schools, and Americans who were actually free to be educated liked it that way. And then Horace Mann started articulating his idea of a common school, a uniform common school that was kind of controlled by the state. Most Americans didn't like it until something fundamentally changed, and that is that millions of Catholic immigrants came to this country in the middle of the 19th century, and it just spawned a nativist movement that was anti-immigrant, anti-foreign language, and most of all, anti-Catholic. And so what we found from the middle of the 19th century on is this drive on the part of nativism to have one kind of school. The notion was that Catholics couldn't be good citizens. Right, right, right. Sort of ironic, right, that this was the, the root of, of the system that, that we have today, which arguably has a very different set of values or goals. It's fascinating to track that history. Well, it really is. I didn't know very much about it until I lived abroad and started finding out that most countries don't structure education the way we do. And it's ironic for another sense, which is that the first common schools were essentially Protestant in nature. They claimed to be non-sectarian, but of course the majority culture doesn't see itself as such. And so the same legislatures that could pass amendments that restricted funding to Catholic schools, what they would call sectarian schools, in the same breath could pass legislation that required the reading of Protestant Bibles and Protestant prayers. And our public schools were Protestant until the Supreme Court, I think, appropriately secularized them in the 1960s. Oh, it wasn't until the 1960s that that that, that happened. Wow. Yep. So we now think of there's sort of the mythology of neutrality about about public schools, but that's I think one of the premises of pluralism is that it's not possible to construct a school that's neutral with respect to values that. The way we, you know, we select materials, hire teachers, all of those things are chosen at some level. And so let's just be honest about that. Ashley, in the, in the work of, of advancing a case for educational pluralism, you know, in addition to your core teaching and the research center you're running, you know, are there meta-level 
questions that always come up? What are the sort of main areas of, of pushback you always hear out there on the street? In America. Here. So I guess the first would be, oh, but we have separation of church and state. And of course, when you talk about pluralism, it, it means funding all kinds of schools, including religious schools. And there, I think it's a sort of misunderstanding of what the First Amendment actually teaches. And in fact, we have quite a long history of you know, affirmations from the Supreme Court that if you have a neutral program, then it can't exclude religion. But one of the products of the 19th century move towards uniformity was that many state constitutions are more restrictive than the federal constitution, those historic Blaine amendments. So I think just kind of talking through what's permissible from a constitutional standpoint and, and explaining that to an, an American audience is really important. The Zellman case in 2002, which, which affirmed the rights of states to pass neutral legislation that could empower low-income children to attend private schools. It seems like this idea of, of pluralism, it, it's the United States sort of has this really opportunistic relationship with that idea because it leverages it when it's beneficial. You know, it, the U.S. is the only country without a constitutional right to education, one of the few, and then doesn't also it also doesn't ratify the UN's Treaty on Children's Rights. And its rationale is that, oh, you know, we operate as a federalist system, that it's up to the states. And so in that sense, it sort of points to pluralism as, as the rationale for omitting that from the Constitution. But then it distances itself from that idea when it's not as opportune. No, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, you and I heard that argument last week with the the lawsuit that's going on in Rhode Island about a right that's kind of pushing on that lack of a an affirmative right to education. The Netherlands actually has a right to educational freedom built into its constitution that has enabled the 36 different kinds of schools and Belgium as well. I mean, some of these Belgium actually was the the only country I know of that was actually founded based on educational freedoms in that the Netherlands passed a law in, in the early 19th century that required a kind of secular common school or I would say non-sectarian common school model and only a I don't know, 10% of the population could vote at the time. And so it was really sort of the enlightenment elites who voted for this. And Catholic families, it was deemed illegal to put your child in a Catholic school, which was not okay with some of the Catholic provinces. And eventually they seceded and formed the nation of Belgium. Belgium still has a lot of educational options, educational pluralism. How do we compare, you know, when you when you think about outcomes amongst OECD countries, you know, if the question is, you know, we're such an outlier compared to the the broader broader world, where do we fit there? We are in the 30s among OECD countries on math and English language art in math and language outcomes. I mean, we are among the lower performing of the OECD countries, and I don't think that correlates directly to pluralism. I think that's more about the content. Mm-hmm of education, which is a, it's another wrong turn that we took in the late 19th and early 20th century, which was away from a liberal arts curriculum and towards a skills-based education. I spent a little time this past week with 
a journalist from Sweden who took part in this Faith Angle Europe conference, and she was describing how the country has navigated an influx of of immigrants, certainly Muslim immigrants, to the point that it's a quarter of of some of the public schools that are there. But also that, you know, the government has made it possible for there to be diverse schools in Sweden. And amongst those, there is one school that has been deemed too radical, or at the very least, the imam, who is the figurehead for the school, has been extradited from the country just now. So the school's probably going to close down. But the, the question that was raised is kind of like, you know, this is a very lovely vision of having Protestant schools and Catholic schools and Jewish schools and Muslim schools and schools of many stripes, including secular humanists. Right. Uh, but how do you make it work? That's the question, right? And you describe in the paper, you just circulated, you know, that there have to be limits. You know, there have to be sort of healthy limits on school cultures, that there's got to be sort of a competitive freedom. What are some of the norms that you see being essential to, to making it work? On the negative side, I think in our country, the clear limits would be against funding schools that are that have a racist tendency, which is against all federal and state laws. And the Supreme Court's actually ruled that even if a private school that doesn't take government money has race-based admissions, it does not have legal standing and legal protection. So racism would be against any, I mean, we shouldn't fund a school that's racist. The other, of course, is sedition, that a school that teaches the overthrow of the government in active terms would fly afoul of federal law. But I think there are a lot of nuances that we would ha- that have to be worked out one by one. You know, this this issue of the radical Islam, a lot of folks are are concerned about Islamic schools. And here again I'd point to history of all the school outcomes that we've ever studied in this country. The strongest positive civic outcomes have come from Catholic high schools, which is is humor. It's funny, you know, when you think about this Protestant phobia about Catholics. Well, Catholic the Catholic school effect is incredibly strong. And it holds across many different contexts. And from what I know of the Muslim schools in this country, the same is happening there. There have been some early studies from UVA and the University of Boston that have shown the real intellectual heft and the mindfulness to be democratically integrated. Now, that's not to say that governments don't have an interest in ensuring academic quality which is very important, and that would be very difficult in this country because the the kind of school choice narrative tends to resist state oversight with respect to academics, and I'm very pessimistic about that. But there have been some cases in Europe, I think one in particular of, of Islamic schools that were using textbooks in Arabic that had been printed and published in an anti-Western country. And the government said, look, this school can operate, but you can't use these materials. So there are ways to navigate it. Yeah. I just got a report in my inbox a few weeks ago. It was from Cardis, the faith-based think tank, and it had some really interesting statistics, not only about Catholic school graduates, but about graduates of other religiously-based schools, like evangelical Protestant schools in the U.S. tend to produce graduates that are at least as civically engaged as their public school counterparts and are really generous and charitable giving. One stat that I thought was pretty compelling was that 
Catholic school graduates have a greater proportion of friends of a different race and ethnicity than their public school counterparts. And that kind of makes sense to me because of sort of the legacy of Catholic schools as being very inclusive, of being prohibited from from barring a student based on their ability to pay. And, you know, given what we know about the public school system and sort of the resegregation, it does sort of shed light on another value of, of these schools that I think doesn't get enough attention. I agree with you. I'm actually an, an academic advisor to Cardis, and I, I think their studies are so interesting because they, as you know, and I'll just explain to the folks who are listening, that Cardis studies alumni of all different kinds of schools, including homeschoolers. And they they pose a series of questions to alumni who are ages, I think, 24 to 39 across a number of measures, not just things like academic attainment, but civic involvement. And as you said, Aliyah, friendships of different races and different religions. And and I, I think that is reassuring to those of us who do care. We should care about social cohesion. Yeah. And given just the state of civics education in this country, I mean, the outcomes are abysmal. And and there's a clear correlation between voter participation rates and access to civics education. Like there are, I think, only nine states in the District of Columbia that require just a year of government or civics classes in high schools. It's it's really not a priority in the public school system. And when it is, it's it's kind of tacked on at the very end of the schooling trajectory. And by that point, it, it's really hard to foster that those sort of intrinsic civic skills. It's not just about knowledge. It's not about being able to pass the citizenship test, which is a requirement in a lot of states now, but it's about those sort of intangible values and principles and that know-how that really enables someone to participate in a democratic system. A hundred percent. And one of the one of the interesting things is that we think of in this country so much. It's a big step for a state like Florida to require civics and to have actually a civics exam, which I think will be interesting to study the outcomes of that. It's actually for states. I think they've already seen good outcomes. Some increases correlated with increases in in performance in civics correlated with that test. So I think it's been a successful measure. But when you think about it, it's not enough to just know how our government functions, which is important when you think that only 40 percent of American adults can name all three branches of government. But what we want for our children, the next generation of citizens, is not just to know how our government works, but to know what our history is, to know where other countries are, to know what religious beliefs are live in those countries. And I look with envy on our peers around the world that require, say, comparative religion and ethics every year as just a point of civic literacy and require sequenced and spiraled history every year. It's a different world. And so we we have a lot of hurdles in that. We have a lot to overcome there. But it's also, and this is the one thing I'll just say, sorry to go on about this, but the other factor that is an early indicator of long-term civic participation is what researchers call the open classroom climate, where teachers are actually empowering distinctive disagreements and different viewpoints. And for many different reasons, our classrooms aren't set up to do this and our teachers aren't prepared to do this. But that has an outsized impact on civic behaviors in adulthood. 
Right, right. One thing that that stuck out to me, what you and I, Ashley, were corresponding quite recently, and and you noted, I think it was in an email that many, if not most, of the OECD countries require comparative religion and ethics as a subject. And so it's very much front of mind for a lot of these countries, the sort of interdisciplinary nature of of civics education or, or civics education at its best. That's right. And one of the things our institute's done this year is to create a school culture survey that actually tries to get at some of those conditions, such as an open classroom climate. And we also ask, what are the taboo subjects? Because what you can't talk about is just as important sometimes as what you can. And my hope is that as we start to focus more on the content and the practices of civics education, that we'll, we'll be able to give teachers the, the kind of skills and the freedom to have those conversations. It's, it's really important. It's interesting to think about the state's vested interest in education being somehow tied to preparation for life in the body politic or obeying the laws or something along the civic realm, you know, as opposed to, you know, academic prowess or work handy (laughs) tasks that are vocationally ready or, you know, uh, for the economy or something along that line. But it is it is interesting to think about that, you know, and I'm curious to ask, you know, as you look around the country and see certain places where at least school choice is happening vibrantly or tax credits are happening differently or there's something like educational pluralism beginning to percolate. You know, what are the places that are that are doing the best in that regard and what's the role that the state is playing? I mean, is the state still regulating those schools in some way that's not terribly different than it would have to be to, to have full educational pluralism? Well, I think it, that's a really good question. I ask myself that all the time. And I, I think the first thing I'll say is I don't think that any of our states have what we would call in this conversation pluralism in that every single program of for so-called school choice in this country is in essence asking for an exception to the norm of uniformity. And so what that has done is it set up a conversation in which any departure from that norm has to justify its legitimacy. It has to justify itself in terms of better performance or better attainment and all that. Now, I'm all in favor of research and I'm all in favor of investigating outcomes, but it would be, in my mind, so much healthier if we could have a different conversation that was actually looking at how to help all schools improve and not pitting charters against districts and districts against choice. That's not what other countries do. And it it seems to me we should be having a different conversation than we're having. But which as to the question of which states are doing a good job i mean it's really hard to say i think florida is has a incredibly there are certain areas of florida like miami dade that have both high choice and high outcomes the, as a district the district schools are differentiating they're held to a high standard and the research that david figlio from northwestern has done on the florida And the Florida tax credit programs shows that it really can benefit the students who stay in the district schools as well as the students who leave. But there's not a uniformity of outcome in any school sector. And that's that's just the truth. I mean, there's no such thing as this will work in all cases. 
I will say that, and I'm biased in this in saying this because it's my home state, but I think Hawaii is a really compelling example, and 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 I've started to realize this more and more as I've reported from a national platform. I used to be an education reporter in Hawaii, and that was sort of my training ground for understanding sort of school choice. And that was sort of, it was a very kind of diplomatic, really supportive system. I think half, if not more, of the charter schools in the state are Hawaiian immersion or Hawaiian focus. So they teach exclusively in Hawaiian or they teach through a Hawaiian worldview, which could be, I think, somewhat akin to religious education. And the school district, it's a single school district across the state. They they really acknowledge the importance of culturally relevant education. There are even district schools that are Hawaiian immersion. And so there are some lessons that can be gleaned from a state like Hawaii, which is just obviously so unique. It wasn't until I started reporting for The Atlantic that I realized, okay, charter schools, school choice have a much different perception here on the mainland. It's it's far more fraught, far more polarized, far more exclusive than what we see in Hawaii. That's so interesting to hear you say that because, you know, I need to learn more about Hawaii and its outcomes. It's not a state that I've studied in particular, but it's good to hear you say that. And it puts me in mind of some of the charter schools in Minneapolis, St. Paul, which is actually undergoing a lawsuit about charters. There's a lot of pressure to shut down the charters and cap the charters. But a lot of the civil rights community is saying we need culturally affirming schools because, you know, our children were in large district schools that were, on the face of it, racially integrated. But when you look under the hood, they were segregated with respect to courses and access to honors classes. And so we want our children in a culturally affirming context for K-12. to and in my view, that that's, you know, if you're going to say that a, a school culture matters and the mission of the school and the coherence of the school and the organic community matters, then that makes perfect sense to me. As long as you hold them accountable to the academic results, which fulfills the public interest. The idea of mission is, I think, really, really key. And I think when the mission starts to dissolve or become incoherent is when the issues start to arise. But the charter schools in Hawaii in many ways kind of arose out of, like you say, a civil rights movement. And it was, I mean, the Hawaiian language was banned in the state's constitution until basically the 80s. And so by then, the number of Hawaiian speakers was in double digits. And now it's in the thousands, and it's largely thanks to these schools. And so they've really framed their message as broader than just educational outcomes and seeking an alternative for for Native Hawaiian students. It was about resuscitating culture. And I think that is a big reason it was so compelling and so well-received. That's fascinating. You know, Alberta, Canada did something similar when they expanded. They had always funded Protestant and Catholic schools, but in the 80s and 90s, they expanded the kinds of schools that they funded, and they really put a big 
a big emphasis on the Inuit schools, which had been oppressed. Uh, the, the, the same cultural oppression had gone on. And simultaneously to those to the expansion of pluralism, they put in place a really robust intellectually challenging curriculum and assessments to make sure that students were all improving. All schools were improving. And they also, which I think is critical, they redistributed the school funding so that it wasn't so contingent on property values. So it was kind of like a grand bargain. And the only thing I've seen in this country that's similar in the recent years has been Illinois' 2017 legislation when they provided more funding for district schools, particularly Chicago. They passed the the state's first tax credit program, and they also required the tax credit the scholarship students to take the state assessments. It's kind of a pluralistic approach. And it, it it just struck me that it was it it really was it came out of political compromise, which is so challenging in our current context. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine you see anxieties on both sides, you know, people who are long invested in the current public school system who have given their lives to this missive and and taught for for decades concerned that resources might be might be pulled away. On the other hand, people who have worked to start from grassroots initiatives and schools that are infused with religious missive as well and they've, you know, they've sacrificed incredibly to do so and and only wish that the I don't know what the number is, 970 billion dollar K-12 industry that we have in the United States today, you know that some of those resources would be made, you know, available for for the schools that they're starting up from the from the grassroots. But I guess I'm curious to ask like, what do you see in terms of the strength and role of unions today versus the sort of exilic status that a lot of these smaller faith-based schools have in play? Well, I certainly see some anxiety on the part of the private school community, and I would say more the libertarian side of the school choice movement that's very anti-government oversight. And I would say we really need to allay those concerns if a if state oversight affirms distinctive cultures and also holds academic accountability seriously then to me that's a good and i think that will help drive equity and narrowing the achievement gaps so i guess i see most of my arguments have actually been with a libertarian side that doesn't want government oversight. And of course, we have to be careful that government doesn't overstep. Of course, we don't want infringements on school culture. But I do think it's appropriate to make sure there aren't any any failing schools, as my colleague Charlie Glenn would say. It's an appropriate goal of public policy to ensure that there's no real you know, school that's not serving children intellectually. As far as unions... I think teacher unions have a function, and the function is about, you know, adult employability and and so forth. And I, I think we have to respect that and understand its purposes and its limitations. And at the kind of quiet, behind-the-scenes conversations should be about putting our weapons down and saying, we're all in this to help kids and at least rhetorically not diminishing whole groups of actors and entire sectors of schools. And as a natural outflow of that thinking, does it end with schools? I mean, should should radio stations have equal access to diverse, you know, worldviews that are out there in society? How do you how do you see it? 
Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good question about aid. If you're talking about state aid, then obviously, there, I mean, many, most state aid is eclectic. So some hospitals are religious, right? Some, you know, there, there are all kinds of, the Supreme Court has been really clear that you can't discriminate against religious viewpoint. And so a lot of Supreme Court cases have said if you're going to, for example, there was a case, Rosenberg versus the University of Virginia rectors, that if you're going to provide a public good, you can't discriminate against religious voices. Positive neutrality. Right, right, right. But you can't, at the same time, can't endorse. And I think that's a fine line to walk, but it's it's something that our, our courts are always trying to navigate. I keep thinking about the sort of dissonance between the realities we're seeing around pluralism in the K-12 sector and that in higher ed, because higher ed is almost the reverse. I mean, it's it seems like an extremely pluralistic landscape if we're talking about sort of the intermixing of private and public institutions and the access to religious colleges among people who aren't religiously affiliated with that denomination. The fact that really, I mean, private colleges are the most prestigious ones in this country, which really sets this country apart from other other nations. That's a really good point. Yeah, yes. I actually did an analysis a while back looking at private colleges and sort of this country's fixation on, on prestige at the higher education level. And I found that at Times Higher Education is a UK-based trade publication, and they do college rankings like U.S. News would do, but for on a global scale. And they ranked the top 100-plus colleges around the world. And I think all but 21 of them were public. And of those 21, all but two were in the U.S. So the U.S. really accounts for pretty much all the most reputable private higher education institutions in this country. Schools like Georgetown, which is Jesuit, is not really associated strictly with the Jesuit community. A lot of non-Jesuits go to that college. There is seemingly a lot more heterogeneity among colleges than K-12 schools. You're so right. You're so right. And in fact, the Pell Grants can go to religious colleges. They're not discriminatory in that way. And there, there are a lot of state programs that can go to follow students to religious colleges. And I think one of the interesting things is that our title funding, our federal title dollars are meant to follow low-income children no matter where they go to school. It's a very difficult process, and I'm not sure we've ever gotten it right, but even at the K-12 to level, we do affirm children irrespective of where they go to school. It's not clear to me that the funding always gets to those children, but at least it's there in principle. Mm-hmm. Why do you think there is that dissonance between K-12 and higher ed or just this sort of conventional values ascribed to them? That's a good question. I suppose it's because very few people went to college until after World War II. But there was a huge early push for elementary school and then eventually for high schools and it was it was something that everyone was engaged in and it was you know if you think about 90% of your population going to 
K to eight, but only 10% of your population going to higher ed or even 30 or 40%, the impetus of action and activity at the local and state level was certainly in the elementary education. And it was compulsory. I mean, we passed compulsory education laws. And, and so therefore, the fear was if all the education you get is Catholic education, then we won't have good citizens. That was the logic. In fact, the first time the Supreme Court weighed in, well, the second time that the Supreme Court weighed in on a state's education laws, it was in 1925, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, to say Oregon had basically outlawed Catholic schools. And the Supreme Court said, no, this violates the federal constitution. And since then, I mean, it seems like private school enrollment rates have have remained relatively stagnant, right? Around 10%. It's not like this notion of private education trying to sweep in and take away students from the public sector is realistic. Well, that's right. And I think in part that's because, for the most part, private schools are only reachable by those who have the means. And I think what what we see in other countries, first of all, a lot of times is just here it's binary. It's either district schools or private schools and charter schools. There are three, I guess, not binary, but it's public or private. And in the UK, the Anglican Church is the primary deliverer of primary education. And Catholics are right there and Jewish schools and Hindu schools. And so they don't have these distinctions that we have because they enable low-income kids to attend private schools or non-state delivered schools. But it's all considered part of public education. And I think we're seeing sort of the consequences of the United States approach with private school enrollment is becoming more elite, just more affluent. It's, It's the inequality, the gap is widening. And I think it's largely because of the demise of of Catholic schools. They used to be pretty much the main form of private education in this country. But but now I think they're just 20 percent of private schools or something like that. You're so right. And it's it's unfortunate. Actually, I'm one of the things I'm really interested in studying now are the Seventh-day Adventist schools because they are growing very rapidly. I think internationally, Seventh-day Adventist is one of the fastest growing school sectors, and they're very racially and socioeconomically integrated. Wow. Wow. Are a lot of the students at those schools non-Seventh-day Adventist, or or is it primarily targeted at, at that population? I actually don't know. I mean, that's a very good question. I assume most of them are Seventh-day Adventists, but if the Catholic school model is any lesson, then it's mixed. But nobody has really studied that sector in depth. I'm, I'm dying to do so. I remember some of the some of the thinkers along this line describing this vision of the plural structure of society and saying that it isn't just about, you know, what's most effective or what's going to get you the best test scores or what's going to be the cleanest way to to fund the project, but it's actually sort of woven into what ought to be in terms of the idea that there are families and schools and community associations and hospitals and and the government as part of the mix. And so it is interesting to think about, is there something that we're perhaps missing Mm -hmm. if this vision is more in play in the in the higher ed space than in the the K-12 space. I do remember though that homeschooling seems to be on the uprise. Yes, there are two million or something. There are as we think as many students in homeschool who are being homeschooled as there are in charter schools. It's over three million. And the fastest growing segment of homeschoolers are African American homeschoolers. 
Melinda Anderson has done, uh, she's a freelance reporter. She's written for The Atlantic, and, and she did a really great piece on what homeschooling means to these families. And it's it's a form of self-determination. It's, it's them um, realizing that the, the conventional system didn't serve them and wasn't designed to, to support them. And so they are really empowered or feeling empowered to carve out their own space. And, and that's, I think, largely why we're seeing that trend with African-American families homeschooling. That was a great article that she wrote. I saw it and I noted it. It was it was excellent. It really diminished kind of we we have so many instinctive biases and assumptions about what homeschooling means and it's just as varied as any other sector. Yeah, I just interviewed a, a teacher a few weeks ago who said just to make a little extra money, she helps to tutor a kid who's being homeschooled. And the reason he's being homeschooled is because he has some debilitating disease that that prevents him from physically being able to, to attend school. So it's not just cults and people who, who want to somehow avoid the rules of, of society. So Ashley, looking at this from the bird's eye view, to what extent do you think a lot of the debates are really just inflated, ego-driven disputes that fail to really acknowledge what is being discussed on the ground, what parents really want, what kids really want, what everyone on the ground really sees as as the real sort of goals of their own education. I don't know that I would that I would say it's it's about ego, although I'm sure in some cases it is. It's just that culture has the effect on us of it sets our framework and our assumptions. And most of us assume because we were raised in this country that public schooling means one thing. And so as those structures are stretching and as public education, public funding is flowing to more kinds of schools, I think taking a a deep breath and looking around the world at what we've learned from other countries and what they actually do and what they make possible is the first step, just taking a deep breath and pausing. And the second thing I would say is it would be really helpful if if we could create the conditions to collaborate across school sectors. There are a lot of problems that all schools need to deal with and that all systems need to deal with and very practical things like transportation. How do you get to school? It's not just a, a, a question and problem that private schools or charter schools have, district schools that are operate within high district choice models like Baltimore City, the low-income children can't get across town to attend the school they want to. And this seems to me sort of something that all of us could wrap our arms around and solve together instead of fighting about who gets what resources. It's probably a wonderful note to end on. You've introduced us, Ashley, to a little bit about what's going on in the UK and Hong Kong and Belgium, Denmark, Israel. Indonesia, Sweden, and France and beyond. And appreciate very much, Aliyah, your weighing in and, and actually you're coming over around this important topic. We'll link to a bunch of reports and articles. Thanks for, for doing it. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having us. Likewise. That was great. Faith Angle exists to connect leading journalists and leading scholars so we all get to engage with better, more accurate stories. Thanks for listening.